Hello, friends. Greg Kogel here on Stand to Reason, and I am your host, and that is the show. So I'm glad you're part of what we're doing here. And uh, I, in the last segment, talked a lot on my own. We have some people that are really patient, waiting for me to get on board. And so I'm just going to jump into calls right now. And let's go to Reno. I presume that's Reno, Nevada. And that's Jane. Hello, Jane. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Sure. Welcome. I have a question for you. Uh, I've listened to your show for a couple years now, both you and the show you have with Amy. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I don't recall ever having heard an argument made for the existence of God based on beauty. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if there is such a thing. I think of the Psalms where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a branch of apologetics that makes an argument based on that. Well, I think there is. And our friend um, Megan Almond, who speaks at a lot of our events and works with her husband at Summit Ministry, is very interested in developing that as an argument. It's not one that I have pursued. It's not one that I, in a sense, am personally interested in. And I don't know exactly entirely how I would develop that. Uh, I'm I'm very interested to hear what Megan has to say about it, but I think there's something there. And the reason I think there's something there is that beauty is— I want to qualify this properly, but beauty is not merely or simply in the eye of the beholder. That is, beauty is not a, a merely subjective experience that everyone has a different idea of what beautiful is. Now, I do think there are subjective elements when it comes to beauty. Some people really resonate with the beauty of a sunset. My daughter, my 15-year-old, she loves sunsets. So we're driving in the car, and the sky is all painted at color because the sun's going down. And where I live, you know, it's, it's near the ocean. Uh, well, it's on the, other, the ocean's on the other side of the mountain. But when I'm driving in the evening, the sun's going down right in my face. I'm driving straight west. And, uh, but she'll be with me sometimes and look at the colors, and bang, she's got her phone out. Click, 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 taking pictures. She must have 100 pictures of sunsets. Now, sunsets, I look up and say, hey, cool. Okay, and I'm back to doing something else because they just don't do that much for me. I can say that, objectively speaking, I think sunsets are beautiful, but they don't do that much for me. I think um, in, in, in the area of human beings, there are certain, certain qualities that universally we consider, we respond to as being beautiful. And it has to do with symmetry and different kinds of things, whatever. But I realize that someone might say, well, that girl is a beautiful girl, but she doesn't do that much. It isn't like that kind of look resonates much with me. So there can be individual preferences within the larger category of beauty. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. And so when people talk about, well, that's not, that may be beautiful for you, but it's not beautiful for me, we're really just talking about some of those more uh, modest distinctions where that resonate with some and not with others. We are not talking about beauty writ large. Because it does seem that there is this category of beautiful things that is an that is a um, aesthetic assessment. 
an aesthetic judgment. And aesthetics aren't physical. It's manifest in physical things. Okay, so I could I could take um, five different or six different pieces here. Let's six six yeah, let's a hex hexagon. Is that six hexagon? I, is is six hexa? Is that right? Or is that five? Penta is five. Penta five hexa. So I could say I have six six objects here, and they're just kind of in a mess on the table. And then I put those into a perfect you know, hexagon, so to speak. Okay, now you've got a geometric form that is much more attractive than the pile of six objects that I had. Okay, that is more beautiful, even though nothing about the objects have changed except for their location. It's something I'm perceiving regarding the organization of the objects that is not inherent in the objects themselves. So at bare minimum, at bare minimum, there are there are features of the world, here we're talking about beauty, that are not part of the physical world proper. The physical world bears I'm trying again, I'm I'm not this is a little bit new to me, so I'm trying to find the right words, bears evidence of the beauty. They display the beauty the beauty, but the beauty is is supranatural. It's above the natural world. It's something other than the mere stuff, physical stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. at bare minimum, we are we are referring to something that is uh, beyond the natural world. It's not essentially materialistic. And if that's the case, then that means there's an immaterial world. There are immaterial realities that have value to them. Because when we say something's beautiful, we are not just observing a quality that's transcendent. We are making a judgment on what we see. Because beautiful is not the same as ugly. Okay? And uh, my wife and I were watching a movie yesterday where it was a medieval movie. They were butchering a pig. That was ugly. (laughs) I'm just saying. It was ugly. It wasn't, you know, harvesting flowers. It was butchering a pig. Gross. All right. So you, there are value judgments to the transcendent factor that we're beholding that seem to be appropriate. So, so now you're in a whole other dimension of reality, and then the question is going to be: What kind of worldview makes best sense out of the existence of something like beauty that is good? All right, beauty. That is a good thing, okay? Yeah. Some have characterized beauty as as goodness expressed in physical form, or something along that line. Um, and once again, when you start talking about values, a good good things, now you're talking about about something that needs to be grounded in a way that makes sense. And, of course, there's the moral argument for the existence of God, where morality is the good, but it consists of obligations, and we are obliged to a person, not to a thing. So the existence of good and evil, in a moral sense, seems to powerfully imply the existence of a moral lawmaker. I don't know how you jump from the, the goodness of beauty to the existence of God. That's a jump that I'm not, I am not. I can't make. But we're getting closer to it, aren't we? 
Yes. Just in the observations we've been making. So I think there is a place for this. And I know people have written on it because I've seen things, but not very much. And um, like I said, my, my friend Megan Allman has been talking about developing this idea of beauty. She wants to do more talks on it as an evidence for God. And uh, and I, I do think you're right. The Scripture speaks of the glorious creation that is evidence of God. It bespeaks God's wisdom and God's own moral beauty manifest in these physical things. I'm not exactly sure how to make that jump because I'm more right brain. Uh, is that right? Uh, I'm I'm more left brain than right brain. Okay, so uh, more on the intuitive side or the whatever, as opposed to the creative side. So um, and maybe it's the intuitive side is whatever. I, I I'm one and not the other. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but some people who are who are maybe more balanced left and right brain can make the case left brain, for beauty as an evidence for God. But I think we've covered some ground already that seems to indicate that beauty is not a physical thing. It's manifest in physical things, but it is not the same thing as a physical thing. You know, um, Jane, I did a debate once in Canada at the University of Calgary uh, against a professor on the issue of moral relativism. And uh, and what he was going to argue is that morality is—he did argue that morality is just a personal preference that people have about right and wrong. That's relativism. And I argued that we can already perceive objective right and wrong, and when we see it, we recognize it, and we can say that's evil and that's good. So that was kind of my argument, and I developed it further. But what was really interesting and a bit odd, it seemed to me, is that he was going to try to help people understand the subjectivity of of morality by talking about the subjectivity of beauty. Now, I, I thought this was a losing enterprise because it's almost as if he's saying, you know, we all understand that beauty is completely subjective. There is no such thing as beauty. And so, therefore, morality is kind of like that. But I didn't think that was obvious to anybody. And he and he, he talked about when we see something that we call beautiful, and this was his language, he said, we are smearing beauty on that thing that is neither beautiful nor ugly. We are proje- he used the word smearing, which also was a bit strange, to yeah. describe the projection of our subjective uh, tastes on a, on an object that is neither beautiful nor ugly. Okay, so weird. Now we're in Calgary. Calgary's like Denver on the plain, but right up against the mountains, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 of course the mountains are grandiose there in Calgary. So uh, I I asked the audience. I said, you guys just have to ask yourself the question: When you look at these magnificent mountains here, um, uh, west of the city, um, are are you seeing something that is beautiful? Or are you are you smearing your own, you know, sense of beauty on these things that have no beauty in themselves? That was my appeal. I was I was appealing to their ethical, not the ethical, but their aesthetic common sense. But you know, the next morning I thought of something, and I I, I was 
this was a Saturday night, we had the debate. Sunday morning I was preaching at the church, and I was just about to be introduced, and right then a thought struck me that got me laughing. So they're trying to introduce me, and I'm sitting in the pew kind of laughing and trying to stifle my laughter, because what I thought of, I could have said, I didn't say this, and if I thought of it, I probably wouldn't have said it, just because it would have been considered impolitic. But what I could have said as I got up in rebuttal to the comment that the professor was making that mora- that um, beauty is just something we smear on an object, I could have just said, Professor, have you ever told your wife that she was beautiful? And if you did, did you clarify what you meant? That you're not... <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see why I was laughing, you know. Yeah. Um, because it was funny, and it would have been an it would have been, in a certain sense, an intellectually appropriate thing to say, but it would not have been a a, a polite thing kind of to say. But notice that what I'm trading on isn't is a an intuition that if he says his wife is beautiful. He means it because he's talking about something about her and not something about him. Well, I think you're beautiful. No, he's not just talking about his own subjective feelings. He's talking about a quality that she possesses, you know? And, uh, and, and, I mean, it, it didn't work on the beauty thing, and it didn't work on the morality thing, so he, it didn't work at all for him. But uh, so he wasted a lot of time, you know, charging up a dead end. But anyway, I think you're onto something, Jane, and uh, and I think that um, it's certainly worthy of being pursued. Uh, I don't have any suggestions for you as to who might have developed some ideas about that. Amy, do you know has anybody written on the apologetic value of beauty in evidence of God? She says, kind of. She's crunching up her face trying to think. Sounds kind of familiar, but it is not something that's very, very well explored. And for someone to explore it well, I think there's an open market. Hmm. Okay? Maybe you can uh, do it, Jane. <laughs> well, Would... thanks, Greg. I'll think about it. All righty. I appreciate okay. your call. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, a... Paul Gould, G-O-U-L-D. And do you know the title? She's kind of looking it up now. I know different people have addressed this before, and frankly, I've heard discussions over at Summit about this issue. So some of the Summit folk have pursued this, but I don't know that there's anyone who's written a piece on it. Certainly, that's well-known that either Amy or I could recommend, but I do know I've been talking to Megan Allman about this, who also works at Summit, so that might be... Uh, that might be an indicator uh, that mo- things are moving forward there. Keep your eyes open. Uh, let's take a quick break here. I'll come back to Mitchell in Wichita when I return on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, 
visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. The documentary, What is a Woman?, sparked all kinds of debate. But did the film give a sufficient answer to the question? Well, I'd like to offer an improved definition in the latest episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Uh, speaking of beauty, Amy has recommended a book. <laughs> she didn't like that. Uh, beauty, a very short introduction. Oh, I see. Okay. But what I said was, speaking of beauty, Amy, see, she didn't get it. All right. Uh, Megan Almond has recommended the book that Amy just told me about, which is titled Beauty, a Very Short introduction. The author is Roger Scruton, S-C-R-U-T-O-N. Apparently he's not a Christian. Is he? Maybe he is? I don't know. Okay. But it doesn't matter. If he's writing a good thing about beauty and the transcendent element, I don't know. We're just not entirely clear about all this, because we haven't read about it, and there's not, um, uh, certainly not a lot of apologetics on it. But there is, if, if you search on the apologetics of aesthetics— I think Amy did a search. There's some different things that come up you might want to uh, to check out. All right, let's go to Mitchell in Wichita. I almost said Michita. <laughs> sure. Hi, Mitch. Hey, Greg. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, so I had a question. I, I was speaking to a gentleman who had held the belief that all humans have divine essence. And he that, had wait, five, could you say that again? All, he held the belief that all humans what had had divine essence that like we were God. Oh, I see. Okay. And so he had about five verses pulled from the Bible, and I'm not wondering about how to respond to him because I, I definitely think I put a rock in his shoe. But one of the verses he had pulled up had just made me question of what it actually meant, and it was Romans eight. 17, mm-hmm. and, and I'll read 16 for you to uh, get the full picture here, but it's, right. the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Mm-hmm. So the, the question I have is, what does it mean to be fellow heirs with Christ? Well, um this is kind of a deep concept in one sense, all right? In another sense, it's not very deep. 
it's deep in the sense of the the long-term ramifications and all that's involved okay but in the in the kind of the straightforward sense Jesus accomplishes for us what we were not able to accomplish for ourselves so in in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 it talks about us being uh, by nature children of wrath okay and that that what we deserve is punishment we did not live up to the standard or the ideal that God wanted us to live up to in order to be considered if you want to use the broadest sense of the word good children or good sons and daughters uh, Paul identifies he's quotes from the Epicurean philosophers in Acts 17 I think and he says as your own writers have said we are all his offspring so there is a certain sense that we are all children of God in a very certain sense but at the same time there is a different sense that only Christians are children of God <clears throat> and that's those when Paul talks about we are his offspring we are all children made by God and like God in some fashion and we know from the very beginning of the story what that is we are made all of us each of us in the image of God but being made in the image of God and in that sense his offspring is not the same to say that is not the same thing as saying that we are that we are part of his intimate family and this is why in John chapter 1 speaking of Jesus as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name in fact the context the broader context is that <clears throat> that the word became flesh dwelt among us that's God became added humanity to himself and came to his own his own were the Jews the Jewish people that he had chosen for a particular task but his own did not receive him they did not when I say receive I mean they did not accept who he claimed to be all right they didn't acknowledge his messianic office if you will but by contrast those who do Jew or Gentile to them he gave the right to become children of God and that then brings us into a whole new category and this is why John would say in first John I think chapter 3 see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God and such we are so there's a distinction there between these groups there are humans made the image of God that are in in some sense the offspring of God we are like him in some way but that doesn't mean we're intimately involved with him in a familial way that's a result of being part of uh, of, of, of coming into the family through Jesus now why through Jesus couple of reasons one of them is probably the most obvious to Christians because Jesus paid for our sins he took our crime the the guilt the debt load of our crimes against God and on himself and paid for them on the cross but the reformers call what happened on the cross the great exchange so there's a 
an exchange that takes place, but it's a two-way exchange. Yes, we, all of our guilt goes on Him. But what, what are we exchanging it for? He gets our guilt. What do we get? We get His merit. We get His righteousness. So Jesus, who was the incarnate Son of God, a Son of God in a very different way than any of us would ever be, Emmanuel, God with us, He is the one whose perfect obedience merited His inheritance. All of the things that befall Jesus in virtue of His obedient life. But what Paul writes about, not just here, but in other places, is that what Jesus has accomplished, we get to benefit from. We come in under that. He gets our uh, sin and the punishment for it, and we get His righteousness. That is the exchange. So we become heirs in Christ. He, he brings us along. It's, it's like if, if, if I was a rich kid, all right, and, and you, uh, Mitchell, were a poor kid, right? And I said, you're coming with me. I'm the guy who gets the inheritance. I'm including you. You are now a member of our family, and everything that is mine is now yours. Heir in Greg. <laughs> you're the heir in Greg. That is, you're the heir because I'm the heir, and I'm including you in with me. So when Paul says we are heirs in Christ, it's because we are receiving, we are included in all of the things that Jesus is receiving that he earned and we didn't, and he is sharing it with us. That's what it means to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with God. Christ. And then, of course, he adds the qualifier, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we might also be glorified with him. Now, what he's identifying there is the fact of salvation entails suffering and difficulty and hardship. And genuine Christians are going to experience that. And this is why Paul says in another place, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution some greater, some less, but it comes with the territory. If you're going to walk with God, if you're going to be with Jesus and a follower of Jesus, then the world is going to hate us. Matthew 10 talks about that. Jesus says to his disciples, also in 1 Peter, different, you know, just as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the same purpose. So that that's kind of how that package works. I, I don't—if what your friend is saying is that every human being is a child of God in the sense that Paul is talking about in Romans 8, he's mistaken. Because children receive the good inheritance, non-children, those who are children of wrath—that's another phrase that is used there—children of the devil, that's what Jesus talks about the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. So there, in one sense— Though we're all made in the image of God, we are, in a very, very general sense, children of God. When it comes to the relational element, some are children of the devil following him, and others are children of God and heirs with Christ because they're following him. And when they do that, they're going to run into trouble with the rest of them who are following Satan, essentially. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I just, you know, you know, read that straight up and it's it's a little bit confusing at first. I mean, obviously you had to unpack a lot there, but mm-hmm. yes, thank you. That that explained explained it a lot better. It, okay, it makes sense then, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, good. And there are as you read through your New Testament, you're going to see this principle come up more often. I mean, if I had time and we're just hanging out and we weren't, you know, we weren't on the air or something, I I could I could page through Actually, if Amy Hall was sitting next to me, she'd do it real quickly and get right to him. Lots of other verses that make the same point, okay? That there is a there is an inheritance that we have in virtue of the fact that we are in union with Christ. I'm just wondering if Ephesians 1 has... Uh, I'll look at verse 3, chapter 1 of Ephesians. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, us, believers, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice that it's the he, Christ is the vehicle. Um, let's see, uh, let's see, da, 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 he, he predestined us to adoption as sons, verse 5, Ephesians 1, through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Um, I'm just He lavished on us his grace in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, etc., etc. So there in chapter—oh, here it is. Also we, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God planned in advance that believers are going to get the inheritance that Jesus earned for us. Okay? And it, it talks about more. But there, there's just another example of the same concepts of our inheritance that we have in virtue of our union with Christ. Jesus earned it. He is the proper heir. Amy is also saying Galatians 3.29. Okay, thanks, Amos. Oh, that's just a couple of pages before. Let's see. What does it say there? Uh, and if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, are you sure that's the one you want? 3.29? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, oh, there's our word, according to promise. Okay, there's a promise regarding Abraham's children, his descendants, his seed. And by belonging to Christ, we enter in to that promise that we inherit in virtue of Jesus. Just another place where we see that same concept. Make sense? Yes, that makes a lot more sense. Thank you so much. Okay, you're you're so welcome, Mitchell. I appreciate your call. Of course. Thank you again. Okay, bye-bye now. Um, let's take a quick break. I've got some uh, open mic calls I'm going to right now, unless you want to call in if you're listening live on the show, and that number is 855-243-9975, 855-243-9975. Amos will take your call and uh, screen you, and uh, likely we'll be able to talk together here in the next half hour. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. 
Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. Let's move to uh, some questions here. I'm actually making a mark in my Bible. I know the question's coming up, so I want to quickly page through. <clears throat> We're going to hear from, and once again, this is an open mic call. You can call, uh, go to our website, uh, str.org, and under podcasts and under live broadcasts, then you can, uh, there's some prompts there that will allow you to leave your own question which then will be recorded by Amy and our long list of questions here. And as we're able to, we get to it, I'm trying to do the oldest first and uh, not even sure how long ago this came in. But um, I'm going to thank Scott in advance for sending it and being patient. You could also call your your uh, question in, and that would be, I'm looking at the number here, 857 dial STR 857 dial STR or 857 342 5787 okay so let's hear from Scott on um on the idea that Jesus um received our punishment Hi Greg this is Scott from Oxnard I'm thankful for all the clear thinking you brought me and my wife through your podcasts and web materials oh, cool. uh, we're actually both strategic partners with you and grateful for that opportunity mm, very cool this being holy week uh, for most of the Christian world I have a question for you about God's wrath in the crucifixion on the cross Jesus became sin for us wonderfully took on himself the punishment that we so justly deserved but why do some Christians go further in their description and say that on the cross, the Father actually poured out his wrath on his Son? Uh, in the story of reality, you quote a hymn with that sort of phrase that Jesus, quote, endured the wrath of, or excuse me, endured the whole of wrath divine. 
unquote. Mm -hmm. Wrath is a word that communicates not just that sin is an evil and that the one who does it deserves just punishment, but wrath is much more like a visceral term that relates to God's anger, not just at the act of sin, but straight at those who commit those sins. Mm -hmm. For example, Revelation 16, 9, God gives mystery Babylon, quote, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. But we know, don't we, that the Father has nothing but infinite love and divine friendship with his Son. While Jesus stood in and took the punishment for us, how much more, if possible, must have been the Father's love to witness his Son being forsaken uh, by the Father as he bore the sins of every person? How can the Father then, at that same instant, be somehow pouring out his wrath on his own dear Son? I think of that ending scene in the, you know, graphic crucifixion description in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Mm -hmm. And as Jesus dies, this great tear uh, falls from heaven. You know, it's God the Father looking down on the Son, and that teardrop lands right at the feet of Jesus. Though simply a film director's creative touch, isn't that a fitting picture of God's heart at the crucifixion? So my question is, is there really a biblical case for God pouring out his wrath on his son? I, I couldn't find a single verse in the New Testament using that word wrath as something that uh, is directed at Jesus from the Father. Thank you for your help. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, good question um, and very thorough, Scott. Um, this, I, I think, is a little bit difficult for us to explain, okay? I do think the phrase... Uh, pouring out God's wrath is an appropriate one, whether or not the word wrath is explicitly used of the work of the of God's attitude or the work of the cross. Okay, the big tear falling out of the sky—that's Mel Gibson. All right, just because that seems appropriate to us doesn't mean it's biblically sound. All right, and the infinite love and divine friendship that the Father had with the Son. Of course, that is true towards the Son, but part of the nature of the cross is that just as the Father sees us in Christ, even though we are sinful and and worthy of His wrath, and we know that because number the word wrath is used to describe God's attitude towards sinners and His act of punishment towards them. So if God's wrath is used as a description of his punishment, what drives his punishment towards sin, and love, infinite love, and benevolence towards us who are in Christ and benefit from his merit, even though we are sinners and deserving of his wrath, the opposite fits as well. When, G when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus and gives us the love and grace that Jesus deserved, but we don't. When he looked at Jesus on the cross, he didn't see, and I'm speaking here in, in, in figurative terms in both cases, okay? It's just the way our manner of speaking, but he didn't see Jesus, the one who, for whom he had infinite love and divine friendship. He saw sinners who deserved his wrath, and upon whom he poured his wrath, which was appropriate for the sin that Jesus bore. Again, whether or not uh, he the, the word wrath is used, say, in the New Testament, 
you don't need to use the word wrath to be to in the text to conclude that the descriptions of what happened to Jesus theologically in the cross were examples of God's anger, wrath, just punishment towards sin being poured out upon his Son. Okay? So when Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Are we to think that Jesus is just saying, I don't see you. Where are you? Where are you? No, something was happening to him. Now, if you look at the Psalm 22, where those words are spoken, he says, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. You're not here to deliver me. Okay? But it wasn't just what was going on as a result of human beings tormenting Jesus that was the anguish. It was also anguish from the Father. So let me just give you a, a verse from Colossians, and then I'm going to go back to the most vivid characterization of what is properly called substitutionary atonement, and that's from Isaiah 53. Remember, substitutionary atonement is Jesus was the substitute who got what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God, clearly stated in many passages in Scripture, children of wrath even as the rest. I think Paul in Ephesians says that. Jesus got the wrath that we are due. Okay? Even if it doesn't say, use the word wrath, he still got what was due to us, and what it does say is what was due to us was wrath. Okay? Now, just a quick reference here to Colossians chapter 2. It says here, when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, or when you were dead in the transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, this is verse 13, chapter 2, Colossians. He made you alive together with you, with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. Wow, that's really cool. We were dead because of our sin, and he made us alive. He canceled out the, the certificate of debt. Now, what is that? That's the rap sheet. That is, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has thus taken it out of the way. Now, if it would just stop there, well, then we would have, oh, okay, well, God just forgave us. Whatever debt there was, he just forgave it. He didn't just forgive it because the verse goes on. In other words, he just didn't wave his hand and it went away. It went away because it was paid for. So here's the way the verse goes. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having nailed it to the cross. Now, that's a figurative way of speaking to say that the crimes, the punishment for the crimes that we committed, were paid for on the cross. Now, remember, by the way, Jesus had a certificate of debt on the cross. I think it's Mark 15, 26, talks about it, well, among other places. And it said, King of the Jews. That was the crime he was being punished for on the cross from a human perspective. But when it comes to 
when it, when it comes to the the divine perspective, what was going on from God's perspective, the sacrifice Jesus was making for toward God. We call it the sacrifice of the cross. Then we're talking about something entirely different. Not the titleist that said, Son of God, but rather this invisible, as it were, certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which were hostile to us. We were guilty of these things. This is our rap sheet. It was nailed to Jesus' cross, and when Jesus was suffering, it wasn't for what the titleist said, being the king of the Jews, but rather it was for the certificate of debt of mankind, suffering for those sins and it was taken away. Now, what is the suffering? The suffering is God's appropriate wrath and anger towards sinners, which is the way he saw Jesus when Jesus was in the position of sinners on the cross. Okay, now that's Colossians. Now, I want to go back to Isaiah 53, because this Isaiah 53 has a lot to say about this, and I'm starting in verse 4. Actually, I'm wondering if I should go—no, I'll start in verse 4 although you can start at the first of the chapter because it does ramp up. But here's the, th- the, the theological elements that, um, that are related to our question. And here's what the prophet says, Isaiah 53. And incidentally, for those who are not convinced that Isaiah 53 is referring to Jesus, um, I, 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 unfortunately, I don't have it, I don't think, right here at my fingertips. But there are references in the epistles— to Isaiah 53 as being what Jesus fulfilled. Okay? So we know this passage from the testimony of the apostles, filled with the Spirit writing holy writ, (laughs) said about Jesus. By his stripes we are healed. There you go, I think that's the passage. Is that in 1 Peter, Amy? By his stripes we are healed. Well, where's that coming from? That's a reference to this passage. So let me read verse 4, and I'll keep going, and, and we'll see where it takes us. Surely, this is re- speaking of the suffering servant, surely our griefs he himself bore. How did he, how did he bear our griefs? It's one thing to identify with somebody else's suffering— you see them suffering, they're a human being, you know what suffering feels like, you identify with them. But that doesn't mean we're bearing the griefs. That just means we're identifying. He says, surely our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried. Stronger language, right? Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Well, was he smitten of God and afflicted? Yes. He was crucified, next verse, for, he rather, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That's the verse that's cited in the New Testament. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like sheep that is silent before his shears. 
He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the, out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people for, to whom the stroke was due? It's a substitution, right? But who was the one? They were due the stroke. Who's the one who ex- ex- exercises the stroke? It's God who's do, who does the punishment. How about this, verse 10? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. Hmm. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. I, I think Isaiah 53 is pretty clear. Does it use the word wrath? No, you don't need to use the word wrath. God's wrath is described in different terms in this passage. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. And uh, the first Peter passage that I think is so powerful, I'll see if I can find it. The, the verse is, he himself, let me see if I find it, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. I don't know. It seems pretty clear to me. I think that's First Peter chapter 3 somewhere. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's got a little rhythm to it, doesn't it? It's got a beauty of it that makes it easy to remember. What does it mean to bear our sins? We have our sins. We bear our sins. We live with our sins. It doesn't hurt us. It's bearing the sin, which means bearing the punishment for the sin. And he bore that punishment that came from God in virtue of his wrath against sin on his body when he hung on the cross. So there you go. Okay, thank you for that, Scott. And thank you for the question, because it allowed me to read through one of my favorite passages and the most profound when you read it slowly. That's Isaiah 53. Uh, Let's see. Um, Let's, um, yeah. Oh, we have a call. Oh, well, okay. Let's go to Sarah in Oceanside. I hadn't even noticed, but uh, thank you for that uh, for that note. And uh, Sarah, you're on board. Thank you for calling here. Hi, Greg. Hi there. Thank you very much for what you do. You're welcome. Um, my question is timely, as we have Halloween around the corner, and I have a full neighborhood who loves to participate. Um, and I want to find out if my response last year was uh, a little overboard. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, now I'm going to, I got to preference this. I got to say, um, 
I remember we just I have a couple of minutes here, so okay, uh, sorry, so that's okay. I used to love Halloween, so I am a hypocrite talking. Okay, <laughs> um, however, after reading the Bible, and um, I noticed that my neighbors had tarot cards and things that are a clear warning, and I was by my flesh, you know, riled up by that, and so my response, I asked myself. If these kids are going to show up at my door, do I participate or not? And what message do I want to send them? Mm-hmm. Because I was upset. So I gave out water. I did like a revival tent, a spiritual warfare SWAT team. And we tried to, you know, we get along with our neighbors, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I gave out Bibles. And I put like spiritual questioning puzzle pieces on my driveway. It was it was a bit much. Um but it, it it actually fits my personality and my neighbors. Okay, well, I'm curious. Much, no, I'm curious. How did how did people respond to your basically instead of tricks or treats, you gave them gospel tracts or Bibles or you know things like that? How did they respond? The kids. Well, my favor. What was in my favor is most of them were dehydrated by the time they showed up, so they <laughs> okay. wanted the water. Okay. So that first happened. Yeah. And then they sat and they read. The puzzle pieces, because I put the spiritual questioning things on there. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted, they came up and asked questions. Wow. I had the grave site. I used to work in mortuary affairs. I might have taken a bit much. I had a morgue body bag that said, are you spiritually dead? <laughs> and I said, death to sin. And on the grave sites, they said theft, murder, adultery, uh-huh. you know, alcoholism. So what I was saying is put that to death and then... I walked around in a body bag, and it said, say no to drugs, or this could be you. <laughs> oh, okay. It was, yes, it was, it was loud and clear, but um, my kids looked directly on that fortune teller and those tarot cards from their bedroom window, and, and I, I, I'm like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, let me, uh, let me yeah. offer a few thoughts on this. Uh, first of all, okay. I think your response was clever. All right. And it got people thinking about some things. All right. Um, the, the fact that your neighbor has tarot cards and, it, of course, on Halloween, lots of people have somewhat occultic themes because that's the kind of holiday it actually is in America right now. For many people, you got these occultic right. themes. I do not think that there's anything wrong at all with celebrating Halloween because Halloween is Hallow's Eve, all Hallow's Eve. It started out actually as as a uh, as a religious holiday, and then it kind of got distorted over time, and then this occultic factor kind of got worked into it, and so a lot of people now generate or gravitate towards that. But the fact is, we can't expect non Christians to live like Christians. Okay, we can, and put, I didn't. Yes, okay, good. Prior to that, that's good, and I'm glad you didn't go over and give them a lecture or something like that. But what you no, did, no, I couldn't because they know I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> well. Well, I, well, that's another issue. We're all we okay. all got a you know a dose of hypocrisy in us, I guess. But um, okay. but the fact that you uh, tried to seize the opportunity and then use mm-hmm. it for something good, that was a great idea. Okay, I am a little concerned about one aspect, and it, it, it sounded okay. it's like you're giving two messages, and both of them are important messages. But I just I'm just making the observation that it might be good to keep these messages distinct. One of them was that we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and the the wages of sin is death. Okay, mm-hmm. then the other one was uh, don't do sinful things like take drugs because you could end up dead, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. 
in isolation, those are good messages, but when they're close together, it almost sounds like, it might sound, seem to people like you're saying, we're all sinners, but if we stop sinning and don't do things like, like uh, take drugs, then we're going to be okay. Then you won't die from drugs, and then, well, mm. okay, the problem is they're still going to be sinners even if they don't take drugs. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, so there's two kind of separate exhortations going on at the same time. Well, the graveyard was, it had everything in it. Oh, okay. All right. It had the whole, it had all of the, it it tried to cover down on everything that could possibly be considered a sin. And then it asked if you were spiritually dead. Uh This was the question. Okay. Well, I, I, look at, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the, but by by the effort that you put in, the creativity of it, and the not only the clarity apparently, but the way people responded. Some young people were considering it, thinking about it, and whatever. So, um, you know, I tip my hat to you, and you didn't give your neighbors a hard time. You just went and offered something different. So, uh, thanks so much, Sarah. You did a good job, and uh, we'll see. Maybe you pull the same thing off this Halloween. All right. Uh, All the best to you. Greg Kokel here. Stand to reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.